Mind your speed and your surroundings. Avoid costly collisions. The Dune Saga Podcast. I'm David Moulton. I'm Scott Herzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And this is also an episode of The Orbital Sword, which is our sci-fi and fantasy uh, podcast. So we're reading this uh, for that this month as well. So if you're listening over there, welcome to uh, what we also do for the Dune Saga Podcast. And if you've never heard of the orbital sword we hope that you come join us over there for general sci-fi and fantasy discussion on this episode though we are reviewing tales of dune extent expanded edition sorry by brian herbert and kevin j anderson so this is a book that came out pretty close to when we had kind of wrapped production of of the main podcast going through all the books um and it collects all of the all of the stuff that they put in magazines or were like uh, small short story handouts with uh, books as they released, um, that kind of thing. I believe there's what eight eight stories here, nine stories. Um, so it's quite short, um, but it's just kind of a little nice little dip back in to Dune. Um, and these these are kind of separated. If you read the book, uh, you've got the Butlerian Jihad period. Uh, the period of Dune proper, and then after the scattering, which is, you know, uh, towards the end of Frank Herbert's run and uh, beginning of, like, Sandworms of Dune and Hunters of Dune, etc. Um, so this is an interesting little look uh, into that. Lots of little stories which we'll introduce as we go, but uh, maybe we can start off with uh, first impressions. What do you think here, Jim? Me? I enjoyed it. For the most part, there were a couple of stories that were just kind of eh, but uh, there, there for the most part, I kind of I, I enjoyed it. How about you, Scott? So I, you know, I really I listened to it. I listened to the audiobook. And I was like, this sounds so familiar. I know I've read these before. Um, now maybe not all the tales, um, but I really did enjoy, in general. Um, most of the short stories, um, you know, I mean, I imagine we'll get into how essential we think this, these, these stories are as far as in the, into the greater storyline, or if it really fills in anything, or is it just more entertaining uh, a little bit later, but, uh, for what they were, I enjoy in general, I enjoyed the short stories and, um, and it was good overall. Yeah, I, I agree. It was it was a pleasant dip in. It, it got me hungry to experience Dune again. Now, um, in two months when we do our next sci-fi book, we will be re-reviewing Dune proper, um, which is right. uh, you know the actual Dune book, and I, I, I'm very excited to do that. But this kind of got me, man. I kind of want to start over again. You know, right. just kind of. <laughs> 
this kind of are goes we starting, through. David, are you saying that we are starting with the Butlerian Jihad and working our way forward again? Is that what you're saying? I mean, I mean, I might be. <laughs> <laughs> are we going to do it's, a podcast on it? Because this sounds very familiar. And I, maybe if I can find two other guys who want to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, but seriously, though, I'm, I mean, I was kind of like, it's it, some of the stuff I was like, I really had to turn my memory to get myself into the time period, especially right. the Butlerian stuff, because it has been so long since we read that. And I mean, we were reading Dune every month for a couple of years there, and we were just in the world discussing it constantly. Right. And when you're doing that, like, you can remember this stuff a lot quicker. Um, but it's been a couple of years since we've been heavily doing Dune stuff, so. I would have been happy if all of these stories had been set in the Butlerian Jihad period, myself. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, or more, I, like, the scattering stuff would have been really great, too, was the... The Dune era stuff that kind of lost me a little bit. So the, these first three, if you're a longtime listener of the show, we did talk about the first three stories before, but we're going to go over them again. They were covered in, uh, I believe, well, the first one we're going to do was uh, just a short story we downloaded and read, and the other two, the, the second and third story, were actually in the book Road to Dune uh, by Brian Herbert, and um, they were included in that. We talked about them there. but. Right. Uh, we're going to start off in the Butlerian Jihad period with a story called Hunting Harkonnens. Be, before what, we be, before we get into that, I do want to. You, yeah. you said it made you want to go back and reread the Butlerian Jihad and move forward. Um, so, like on one side of me, if you were to say, David, hey, you know, let's do maybe not as extensive as you did, but let's do a mini uh, kind of reflection and like do these again. I might mm -hmm. be up for it, but we'll talk after. After there's no promises. Um, but <laughs> this, this when we when we did read this series, it did make me want to go back and read Dune again, which I started. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know we're reading in two months, and I'll reread it again. Uh, I got sidetracked by the new Thrawn novel that Timothy Zahn put out. So, um, but I'll be back with Dune. It did like just like you reading these short stories made me want to get back into the Dune universe. So yeah. from that end, this collection's successful. You know, it's kind of jogging my memory and making me remember characters that I haven't visited in a while, and it's making me want to visit them again. And and maybe in that and uh, maybe in that way, this collection of tales has been successful. Yeah, yeah. See now, as I read it, um, it 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 kind of felt like. Uh, like an old friend visiting, you know, you know, I mean, that's where we started with Dune. However many years ago that's been now, um, <laughs> it's been a while. I don't, I can't, yeah. I don't recall, but, um, you know, it was just kind of like, Hey, you know, here, here we are to visit. And then these characters and everything, I was afraid I wouldn't remember anybody or, or anything, but, uh, it, it sure did. It sure did give me some some flashbacks and uh, remind me of things that I really enjoyed about reading the series the way we did. Mm -hmm. Right. I completely agree. I completely yeah. agree. agree. Yeah. Good, good, good memories there. Um, so the first story we have here is called 
Hunter Hunting Harkonnens. Yes. And uh it's set, I believe, between books two and three of the Legends series. And uh we follow Pierce Harkonnen. Uh I'm sorry, no, this would be a prequel to the to the original yeah, it's a prequel to right. the whole series. It's a prequel yeah, sorry. to the Butler and Jihad. Uh, it follows Pierce Harkonnen along with his father. Um I can't quite remember this name off the top of my head, Ulf. but oh, Ulf, Ulf, yeah, Katarina, and 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 his mother, and they're they're going to uh, Caladan, I believe, of all places. And um, on the way there, they get attacked by om- ominous, oh, ominous. Okay. I got to get these names right. Jeez, Agamemnon and yeah, Agamemnon, Agamemnon, and, and his Simek army, uh, like a group of them attack, and they're just out for sport. Uh, killing killing league members and they kind of maroon on this planet and uh peers along with some of the native caldan people kind of booby trap and do some things to get the cymex destroyed and agamemnon leaves the only survivor of his his little thing but as a result uh Ulf and, and his wife are are dead, and everyone considers Piers dead. He's on this primitive planet that doesn't have space travel. He he spends the rest of his life there, and his younger brother uh, Xavier is left with another family on Seleucus Secundus. And when we start reading the Butlerian Jihad, uh, we are join we joins uh, Xavier already with that family and been there for a couple of years and his right, you know, orphaned and, and being raised by this, this, uh, very nice family, which it, it's funny because you see Ulf and, and his wife, they're, they're, they're a typical Harkonnen. Like when you, if you know, Dune, right. you know, the Harkonnens are the bad guys and Piers is not that way. And then because of the separation, Xavier is raised a hundred, you know, a full, you know, one eighty from, from, what the Harkonnens are normally, well, and you right. kind of have to get used to that. Yeah, and oh, right. he—he's out for profit. He's looking to make a profit. I didn't particularly see him as evil. Uh, you know, just he's—he's he's out to make money and find right, find right. new commerce to open up. So, right. I think the part that uh, for me that that put him in the evil bucket is the the treatment of slaves and stuff i think that was ah. a, a, the typical harkening like classism right. that you you get in the later books yeah. where they're just so rude and and crude and of course literally he, he he makes them more and more visually disgusting to make up you know so they they actually look like their character <laughs> uh their inner character but um at this point in time, they're just nobles that are just kind of brutal, yeah. brutal yeah. people. So what I, what I like about this story a lot is that it does give us this, uh, when we encounter the Butler and Jihad, um, Xavier's just staying with uh, this family, and we don't really know any backstory. So this fills in the gap and explains how he ended up in that family um, and, and tells a little bit about a brother that's been abandoned and and tells that story, but it, it does give a little bit of an explanation as far as filling in the gap. And not to mention it's, you know, this whole like being hunted and trying to live is, it's kind of an interesting story in its own right. Um, where Piers is trying to 
survive the the Simek attack and 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 you know and the natives, the underdogs, you know, you kind of rising up victorious against these Simex. That technology yeah. can only take us so far. <laughs> then you get a good introduction to the Simex uh, uh, and Agamemnon and how he is very much a victim of his own hubris. You know, mm-hmm. these, these half-man, half-machine beasts are foiled by extremely primitive people. Uh, when you would think that they would be more advanced than are above the type of traps that they lay for them, but they are not perfect beings and they are not indestructible. Nope. They are still human in a way. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. let's face it. The, uh, tribesmen on Caladan, they, they are hunter gatherers. Uh, they're very familiar with their own environment and they use the environment as a weapon against Agamemnon and his legions. Yeah. And so it was completely unexpected because Agamemnon thought he, going in, he had the upper hand. Uh, You know, he had the weapons, he had what he needed, but uh, he he underestimated the uh, ability of the Caladan tribesmen to uh to use what they had at their disposal very effectively <laughs> that's for sure yeah yeah you know one of the things i, I wonder you know so pierce harkonnen of course is stranded on here and lives his life with his tribe um it, it makes you wonder because kaladin plays such a major role into the uh, story of dune is if there are descendants of peers that kind of play into the future of the dune universe Possibly. I don't know that we ever know. It's more. It's more. It's more of a, a theoretical, and it's certainly something I think that they uh, could explore in another short story because it's kind of an unanswered question. You strand a Harkin in here. Uh, does he remain single all his life, or does he is a does he get married? You know, inter- intermingle with the tribe. I mean, what what's going on here? So, I thought about that as well. It's hard to tell because at the end they do make it sound like he is fairly crippled by his experience. As to what extent, it's kind of hard to tell. But. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to be crippled down there. I mean, just like. Wow, 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 wow. Oh, is that a loot tune? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. oh, did he break out the loot for that? A little bit of romantic loot music and pure. Oh, I'm going to I'm gonna loot you. I'm going to loot you for sure. So, <laughs> so uh, all right. Let's, I've been let's... looted by Jim. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, now, I wonder if the story's outcome wasn't the last, the very last part of it, where word reaches the family that Xavier is staying with, what happened. And Xavier, and it it causes Xavier to decide that he was going to fight the machines when he was old enough. Right. Right. Yeah, it's basically them breaking the news to him and telling him that he was going to stay with them from now on, and he's like, "I'm going to get vengeance." And yeah, it does give him a reason to ha- be, be so angry at the machines. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a, it was a spark that that lit the fire in him, uh, and made him the great soldier that he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So very good. Well, I like this story. Yeah, it's a good. It's a I give good this one. a. I give, I give this one a uh, four out of five. I liked it. I'm going to go with that as well. Four out of five. Now, my question, or Jim, what would you give for this? Sorry, before I move on. Uh, this was, I think, my favorite story in the book. So okay. I, I'm going to call it a five. Sweet deal. Ooh. Cool. Yeah. Well, where do you think, or how, how do you feel that this should have been, or could have been worked in to do? Like, to me, this is a great short, short story and almost could have been the introduction in the book. Like, you well, know, I was going to say, this could have been, this could have been like a prelude, like a, at the very beginning of the book, you put this story in and then, you know, 20 years later, you know, yeah, something like that. And boom, we're in chapter. But one. I forget, I, for, I forget in the Butlerian Jihad, if they had some sort of prelude already. So maybe they right. went back and gave the history of, you know, why we're in this battle with the Cymax. And I forget, it's been too long since I've read the book. But this certainly would fit into 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 there. But. So, uh, just to give a little bit of uh, backstory into this specific small story, uh, it looks like uh, Brian and Kevin were out doing uh, some book readings, and they found themselves stuck at a train station with a lot of extra time, and they were just brainstorming back and forth this this story. And uh, kind of like all, hacked it all out, and just passed their their computer back and forth, blocked out the details, and then uh, before you know it, they had this short story out that they you know it was kind of created the story while um, doing the press the press for the books. So this was written post um, the Butlerian Jihad, but as a nice little side story. Uh, Mixed in there, I think this could have easily been a subplot that they mixed in to one of the later books too. Um, you know, maybe they could have had Piers come back in some way or an artifact or something. But at the same time, it it doesn't really move anything forward on its own, so it does well as as a short story. Mm-hmm. So, all right, it let's does. move on. I, and I'm, I, I, I'm taking a real quick look at the Butlerian Jihad, and they actually start with a short, they tie it into Paul and it's Princess Irulan that's kind of giving like a little bit of backstory. And it is kind of a recap of how man ended up into the thinking ma- machine system, which we do need, by the way. Um, but it really doesn't tell a story. And like, you could probably throw it in there as like a second prelude if there is such a thing. But mm. Anyways. Mm. So our next story is also uh, within the Butlerian Jihad period, um, and it is called Whipping Mech. Now, this story, uh, it takes place between Butlerian Jihad and um, the Machine Crusade. There's a nearly quarter century gap between the two books, and this falls right in there. Now, when this book, when this was released, it was released as um, promotional material. For the Machine Crusade as a bonus CD uh, with uh, an audio version, or you could get a little pamphlet version of it when you pre-ordered the Machine Crusade uh, that Tor Books gave out. So uh, that's a little interesting thing there. So the Whipping Mech, this is a story, this one for me honestly was the hardest one to remember characters um, because it's so mid-story and it barely has any of our 
our big leads in it um, at, at a pivotal time. We've got Virgil Harkonnen, and um, or, he's not Harkonnen. I'm sorry, it's Virgil. Uh, oh, I can't remember what his last name is, but he's the son of the family that took in right. the Savior. Right, uh, and he he's desperate to be a part of the Butlerian Jihad. Well, Xavier's this big, you know, he's Segundo, I believe, at this point. So he's, mm-hmm. I don't really know that's above general or what, but uh, Segundo, right. he's in charge of, like, uh, full operations. Uh, meanwhile, Virgil's on Gidi Prime and, like, working with the division of the army that rebuilds the the um, planet after freeing it from the, the <clears throat> machines. Right. Uh, yeah. So Xavier comes back from a a loss, a great loss, and uh, Virgil wants to join up, and he he's he's upset with uh, Xavier for not for babying him, and he goes on a ship and he finds one of the mercenaries, which were kind of like the Guinea's mercenaries, which are kind of like the pre swordmaster right kind kind of thing, and. He discovers that there's uh, a uh, one of them on there. Which I can't remember his name. He was a he was definitely a a main character in the in the books, but I can't remember his name. But he was a mercenary, and uh, he trained with a robot that they had retrained, and it was very controversial. And Virgil insists on allowing being allowed to uh, train with the the mech, which does not have any type of security measures on it. And uh, it just becomes this big thing where he, his eyes are opened to what fighting, he wants to be a part of this battle, to what the battle is like, and how these uh, machines are ruthless and have no mercy and uh, are nothing like what he anticipated. And uh, yeah, so it's called the Whipping Mech because they, it's this, this mech whips the, the guys into shape. Yeah. Are you done? Are you done talking? Yeah, I fell. I, I, I fell asleep. I'm, oh, I'm just word. kidding. Come no, on. this. No, th- this is what I. But this is how I feel about this story. <laughs> like the story. Like as far as like so in in hunting Harkonnen, you you have a real sense of these humans are in peril. They're being attacked by the Max. They, you know, it's a sacrifice and die, and they save the sun, and the sun crash lands, and he's you know, going through the jungles to get away and he's saved by these band and they encounter him again and they defeat them. So like there's a very sense of very beginning and end, but this story, you know, it's clear that yes, he wants to go to war um, and he wants to be like his older adoptive brother. Um, And he gets in there and fights this machine and this machine shows him just an ounce of compassion, which is a little bit confusing when you see, uh, because they don't really explain why that is. And, we really don't see that. Like even with Erasmus, we really don't see that sort of compassion. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's just, it's weird. And then we get like, Oh, there'll be plenty of times to fight the machines later. Uh, it just didn't feel like for me, a cohesive story for myself as I look at it. Mm-hmm. The uh, warrior's name was Zanoret, by the way. Yeah. Zanoret. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think this story would have been fine intermixed when we were reading through, uh, the Butlerian Jihad storyline, the, the Legends of Dune storyline. 
But on its own like this, it, I agree with you. It wasn't very interesting. It didn't really add any excitement to my day or anything. I knew Virgil wasn't going to die. <laughs> you know, I I knew that the the mech wasn't going to wasn't going to come close to killing him since the mech is a prominent figure uh moving forward. So I I feel that this story specifically so far of the two we've gone over would have benefited to reading chronologically and uh being taken out uh of time like that it just doesn't carry a lot of weight. Right. Mm. Right. No, I agree. Thoughts, Jim? Well, I kind of felt a little bit differently than you guys. I I saw it more as kind of a parable um mm. where uh Xavier returns to Giddy Prime and he is just tired and he needs a break. So he goes he goes to his brother's house and has dinner and then Virgil is like tell me stories, tell me stories. So, you know, Xavier tells him stories. And it's like it gets Virgil all fired up about wanting to be a part of this this war, and he comes upon this uh, training mech and <laughs> wants to fight it. And of course, the Guinea's trained guy he says, "Sure, go ahead. You know, uh, go ahead, take your shot." Well, you know, here Virgil he thinks he's all ready to to go out because you know. Uh, He's he's uh, Xavier's brother, and he's ready to go and and join the battle. But he finds out that he isn't ready. Um, the compassion thing, as far as I'm concerned, is the mech whipped him and whipped him easily. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and whipped him so easily there was no point in killing him. It's almost a Klingon thing, you know. Um, because mm. the mech was fighting an unworthy appoint, uh, opponent. Mm. Mm. So no, and you and, and and you know it's and I agree with you, and um, I do like the idea. It's easier to view it as like a parable, like you know, do not like do not think of war more beautiful than it actually is. You know, oh or, yeah, or whatever the parable is. And well, I and, I, and I totally get that. We do, we this could have we do that ourselves. You know, we we romanticize war uh, like crazy in all our movies and everything. And it's like you know, uh, you see John Wayne running down the hill with an M sixteen and two hand grenades, or or an M one or whatever he happens to be carrying, and and takes on an entire army and wins. I mean. You know, that's going to tell someone that, hey, you know, hey, war's easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, this story could have easily been told uh, by Virgil as a parody in one of the, either either this book or one of the later ones. And I think had more right. more prominence in, in the story if it had been included within the books. Um, I don't, personally, I want to give this the, one a three, three out of five. I was just going to say that one of the things that this book did do is reacquaint me with flow metal i totally forgotten about that existence no. mm. anyways you so gave yeah. it a three three um, yeah i was going to give it a two but when jim said parable and i saw it through that lens i'm going to give it a three two okay well, I, a three also i thought it was a four 
you know it okay and i i didn't see that it had a place in the main books it was a side story that um probably just wasn't really necessary to be in there mm -hmm. yeah well let's move on to the next one it's called the faces of a martyr and this one takes place between the Machine Crusade and the Butlerian Jihad. I'm sorry, Machine Crusade and the Battle of Korin. Um, this story we see uh, Talaxu geneticist uh, by the name of Rekor Van, who barely escapes the purging of the Talaxu at the end of the Machine Crusade. I believe this was this one was really hard for me to to remember what was taking place between the two books, and I it was. Post uh, Xavier sacrificing himself to kill the um, what's the, the, the like president? What's his name? Uh, Ginjo. Uh, oh, I forget. Ginjo. Yeah. Uh, and and as a result, there he also had released all this information about the the Tlaxu harvesting people and their organs and stuff and reusing them. Um, not quite exactly what the Telexu that we come to know later on. Um, so uh, Rekor Van says, well, I've got all this this technology and I have cells from Serena Butler. I have nowhere to go, so I'm going go to go to the machines and see if I can uh, barter my way with them. And uh, he offers to make clones of Serena for Erasmus and... Um, yeah, like things do not go great. Yeah. So, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> to say the least, this one I could have sworn was actually in the books, and then the more I re remembered about it, I don't know if this one has. I mean, it's fine, but I don't know if this has a place in the books because I felt like they kind of cover. If I don't, I, when it, in, in the in the main books in in um. Uh, the Battle of Koren, Erasmus talks like he's expecting a lot out of these clones of Serena, and he does allude to that there was more. There was more of them, but I really feel like the one that's kind of the main one in the story. He's expecting a lot out of it, like he's never been let down before. And in this story, we get a, he gets a clone of Serena that's just an utter and complete failure to him, to the point where it's kind of shocking to me that a that a uh, machine would have this uh, trait of insanity, repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Mm -hmm. so. I did read this story before, and I, I, had, I had had this book. I must have purchased it after we were finished because I did. I had this entire collection we went back through, so it was familiar to me, and... um. It, it it's really this discussion of you know nature versus like like nature versus nurture um you know what was innate uh in um in serena and really and then what is because of her environment and it's clear that that much of what made serena the catalyst that she was for the butler and jihad um was really an environmental thing. And so removing all that and just raising her in a lab 
just didn't have just didn't make her the same Serena that she was in the prior books. And so for me, it was just a an exploration of those sort of ideas kind of played in and that um, you weren't really cloning Serena. You were just using genetic material and creating another Serena, but it wasn't the same Serena because there was just the environmental factors were no longer there. Well, I mean, I think that is a clone, but what you mean, it's not a Gola. Yeah. Was what, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what did you think of this one, Jim? Well, I, I'm more focused on Vorian Atreides, who is my one of my all-time great heroes in, in the whole saga, and how he was there witnessing uh, Harkonnen's downfall, Xavier's downfall, um, mm-hmm. you know, because Iblis Ginjo, who was dealing with Wrecker Van and the Thulaxa, just put everything back on Xavier. So Xavier was falsely accused of being part of this Thalaxu thing. And, you know, it's, uh, I guess, you know, not all things are what they seem. And Wrecker Van, he, he thought he was going to, he thought he was going to be a big hero, uh, as far as Erasmus was concerned. And there was just no way uh, it was going to turn out good because, as Scott said, the environmental factors are not there to create another Serena Butler. As a matter of fact, she turned into a basically a seductive little tart, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which which angered Erasmus. And uh, when Wrecker Van became the subject of Erasmus's experiments, I felt very satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I was very because because he was he was he was kind of a bastard, so I was totally good with that. So, where would you put this uh, out of five? Oh, probably a three. Mm-hmm. Scott, yeah, three for me. Three for me too. You know, I'm gonna give it a four. I thought the story. Right. I mean, it, this uh, this one really made me want to read the books. Like I was like, oh, I want to continue this story. Y- you know, I want to get to the point where Gilbertus Gilbertus uh, starts falling in love with the Serena clone, and you know that kind of stuff happens. So, mm-hmm. uh, I was interested to keep going, and I think that's good. So the next story we have here is called Red Plague. Now this one takes place between two of the School of Dune books. It takes place between Mentats of Dune and Navigators of Dune. And here we see, I believe if I remember correctly, um, the computer Omnis has put out uh, viruses as part of his attacks. And there's a planet that's got the Red Plague, and they've been kind of cordoned off. Now this is a planet that had pledged itself to... uh, Manford's new Butlerian revolution, uh, where they they don't want anything to do with machines or technology whatsoever. So they're kind of against all modernism to a degree, uh, to the point where they are turning down medical help, uh, especially when it comes from 
what would become the spa- eventually the Spacing Guild. Uh, the gentleman by the name of I don't remember his name, but Venport. Uh, Venport. Yep, Aurelius Venport. Joseph Joseph yep. Venport. Joseph Venport. Sorry. Um. Anyway, uh, that kind of is where we are with this one. It, I I think this. I don't know. This one might be my favorite one of the series, and not because it's particularly good, but because it brought up a lot of memories and of reading the school books, which are my favorite Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson series uh, of books in in Dune. And uh, it just, you know, when uh, Ventport <laughs> called him Half Manford, I just it like all of the fun of how upset Jim would get. Every time Manfred was a part of the story <laughs> and how much he hated this character just came flooding back. And I was just like, I forgot how much we hated this guy, uh, how much, how much he really upset Jim every time his story like took a turn. Uh, you know, so I think for me, this one, I, I, I really enjoyed what was going on here. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, this one, what I liked about this one was, um, Especially its discussion of it's the age old, you know, extremists on both accounts, especially like I'm all for religion, right? But when you when religion becomes dogmatic and extremist and saying like, oh, our faith alone will save us and heal us, this is what we get. Um, you know, let's throw away any sort of medical help and advancements that could help save us and instead just rely on our faith. And, and this is a, this is a story really illustrating that kind of a parable of that for, for, for some, you know, the, maybe it's a story against the anti-vaxxers, right? Um, There's a sense that it does parallel some of what we see in our own world to a greater or lesser degree. And I'm not saying that all people are religious are that way. I'm just saying that, you know, you have, you certainly have, you, you certainly have those that, you know, won't take medicine or will sacrifice, you know, going to the doctor because they believe God will heal them. And it's kind of this, um, and I'm not saying there's not a place for faith, uh, but I am saying that, you know, here you see it, it's it taken to its max and just rejecting all sorts of medical help when it's quite a solvable problem, you know, and they'd rather die than accept the the fact that it's solvable. So, mm. um, so I, I, I did like it from that. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that what more, I, I don't know that it's my favorite story, uh, but it was a good, it was, it was better than the whipping Mac story. Mm. So. Well, as soon as Manford got mentioned, I, <laughs> my blood started to boil okay uh i don't like this guy i i can't stand his hypocrisy uh setting himself up as you know saying that he can't they're his people and he can do whatever they want with them of course okay so that's you know that's the way it, it has been but when you throw Vanport in the mix on this, you see two sides of the same coin. <laughs> All right. Cause Vanport is this, this, uh, souk doctor 
comes to Vanport and says, I have a cure for this red plague. And Vanport says, so what? Nobody outside of Manford's people are affected by this. Let them die. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the souk doctor, he's very skilled at, at um, the art of persuasion, persuades Vanport that, hey, look, if you allow us to go in and cure your enemy, it is going to be a great public relations uh, victory for you. And Vanport says, oh, yeah. Well, then let's do it. And he doesn't, right. he, he doesn't care any more for these people than, than the man in the moon, right? And here's Manford right. being offered a free cure to this and kills all the souk doctors. And so, as far as I'm concerned, both of them are hypocrites. Well, they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, they're just, their methods are, are, are just different, or, and their reasoning is different. And, um, yeah, and, you know, you know who pays, of course. It's, it's not Manford, and it's not Venport who pay. It's the people that work for them or the people that follow them are the ones that suffer uh, for their stupidity. So, uh, you know, and, and the other side of this is it, it it ju- it brought this um, COVID thing just right front and center in my mind. You know how wow. You know, imagine imagine how bad this is, and yeah. and how bad it could be because we're seeing it. You know, the, the the story took on a whole different meaning for me. I'm gonna call oh, it no doubt. I'm gonna and that, and I agree. I agree. Yeah, and I'm gonna call it a four. Not my favorite story, but but it was up there, uh, exposing exposing the hypocrisy on both sides. No, absolutely, and I would agree. I think that I think the scoring for me would be probably uh, um, three point five. I'm not going to go three, and I don't feel like I can go four. But I did enjoy this story a bit more. I am going to give it a four. I felt like. <laughs> Uh, I don't think it was the great, greatest story, but uh, man, <laughs> being reminded of how much Jim, how much Jim gets upset by this was <laughs> so much. It was so much fun for me to to not be the only one who rants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, what, what Jim wants to do is take his loot and beat it over his head. <laughs> no doubt. No yeah, doubt. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All righty. So the next book in or the next uh, little story here, uh, and we're now into the Dune period. This is called Wedding Silk. This story was originally written to be part of the book Paul of Dune, which takes place directly after Dune. However, half the book is a flashback to Paul's younger years before leaving Caladan, and that's where this fits in uh we follow a a story where his father was going to uh look into becoming betrothed to uh, a lady of the court and paul and his mother come along Uh, meanwhile duncan idaho takes paul 
uh, out into the woods with some of the uh, sword, some two other swordmasters, and they collect silk from a very dangerous worm and hawk uh, moth. Was it or hawk butterfly? Fa- falcon. Falcon moth. It was a moth. Falcon moth. That's what it is. Yeah. And um, I apologize for getting that wrong. No worries. But um, yeah, it's just about collecting the silk and kind of. Uh, Paul showing his, uh, I don't know, abilities, I guess, or kind of, it's, this one was rough for me, I'll be honest. I didn't care <laughs> at all <laughs> about what was going on. Um, I understand why it was cut out, because it just, it just, and I remember when we read Paul of Dune, which is a weaker book uh, in the series, we all kind of didn't, if I remember correctly, didn't really think that the story part that was in the past was really all that spectacular. That's mm. right. That that book jumped back and forth, didn't it? Yeah, it was like every other chapter or something. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is which is sad because you would think that with Paul you could do something like that and like tell a rich, deep story. And you know, of you know, what's more quintessential to the Dune universe and Paul Atreides? Um, but here we are, and uh, and once again, even the short story, you're saying it feels lackluster. It wasn't that. I mean, it was neat to see Duncan Idaho back in the screen because we this is our first story with Duncan Idaho, right? Um, and to have Paul, but it just uh, it didn't. I don't know. It was like the 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 tail on the kite just you know wasn't enough for the kite. I, I was something like that. Hmm. I I this story was meh to me. I mean, so what? Um I, you know, okay, fine. We got to see Duncan Idaho again. Whoopie doo. But I'll tell you what, one thing I do enjoy is the different personalities of the Ginaz masters. You yeah. know, Blood and Dinari and and their interactions uh, you know, for that reason, I stuck with the story. But as far as Paul and the stupid silk and all this other crap, I I didn't uh, I didn't think it was all that great. Uh, I'm I'm yeah. gonna hang a two on it. Mm. I'm with you. I agree. I'll give two it a me. two. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a two. Now, Blood and Denari, they were both in the Houses of Dune trilogy where they oh. they were part of the oh yeah uh yeah. that entire Ginaz training uh stuff in that out, throughout that book was was absolutely fascinating the, you know the way the way all these guys have their different personalities and and uh their little idiosyncrasies and and you know how they managed to get the job done was beyond me but they did they were fascinating. The rest of it, uh, yeah, you know, whatever. But <laughs> right. Well, right. moving on to the to the next book, it's called "A Whisper of Caladan Seas." Um, this story is a side story that takes place during the beginning of Dune. Uh, right. Like right. Well, I guess not the beginning. Is it about a quarter of the way, midway through? When the Harkonnens and Carinos uh, attack and uh, kill Duke Leto, the story follows a 
group of Caladan soldiers on Arrakis uh, during the battle and the confusion of what's going on. They're not sure if the Duke got out safe or, or you know, how uh, how did the Harkonnens get through um, the ranks? And they think they see Sardaukar in, in their ranks, the people fighting like Sardaukar. And then they go into a cave and there's a cave in and they're stuck in the shield wall. Right. And basically it's what I, I liked about this is it features a jungalore, uh, which we hadn't heard about really since if I recall, I don't remember if they were in the house books, but they were definitely in the the legends books. And, Oh yeah. And it's basically these art, these artisans that, are so skilled in telling stories and stuff that it's almost hypnotic and people can get lost in their right. tales. Um, right. Yeah. So it's kind of right. about them dying in this cave. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm re as I mentioned earlier, I'm rereading Dune and it's easy to see where this story fit. Um, Cause they, re- they reference soldiers, Harkonnen soldiers, not Harkonnen, Atreides soldiers being trapped um, and them not rescuing them. Um, and so that, so it's easy to see where this fits. Um, I really, uh, it's a, it's a really, it's a really sad story. Um, but it's beautiful at the same time. And I think like the the jungler and the jungler and the, um, and the story that he tells and, and the, and then the fact that, you know, they talk about them being there and the and then them and then the course of Fremen finding him later drowned and how they won't touch him. It's just it's just uh it's a beautiful in a sense homage to the the the, the foot soldiers that that fought in this invasion. And and it, and for me, I really I was really moved by this story. Not because there was some great, you know, beginning middle and end plot type thing but because of the 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 humanity if you can call it that of these soldiers and what they were dealing with and the lack of hope what do you think jim uh meh rubbish one (laughs) that's all i'm gonna say about it it was way too damn much hocus pocus for me Wow. Hey, you want my rating on it? This one gets a four point five. Yeah, I was. I'll give this one a four point five. Jim's giving it a one. Yeah, okay. yeah. It didn't. It didn't move me at all. Okay. Do you know what would have made this story a five for me, David? What's that? If the jungler would have whipped out a loot, and the jungler's name was Jim, I would have been there. Totally it's actually the the story of Jim. Right. You know. I like it. I love it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. moving right uh, along we'll, hey, hey. <laughs> but yeah we'll move on to the next book it's called sea child this book was written uh as a uh it was written for the tsunami relief anthology called Ent- elemental and so it was to raise funds for charity and it takes place during chapter house dune um here we follow i believe it's Sister Corista, as she takes in a what is the name of these creatures? Um, 
she takes in this like water, a buzzle. No, she's she's on buzzle, and she takes care of a creature that the uh, honored. It's like a phibian, a phibian child. They call them phibians. Yeah, phibian. Yeah, yeah that's it. And it's uh, she takes in a, a wounded child that's been rejected by the phibians, and they're like half man, they're mer people basically that the honored honored matres have like genetically made, and uh, she takes it in and nurtures it back. And this is after she's dealing with her own child being taken away by the sisterhood, um, which is uh, normally they're not allowed to, to form relationships with their children, and uh, she thinks that. She's going to be greatly punished for this, and that when she releases the child back, the amphibians are all, are going to just kill it, basically. And uh, it turns out to be quite the opposite. And the amphibians welcome the child back into their into their group. And if I remember correctly, I think in follow up stories, this is like kind of a thing that happens where the the child is now more of an adolescent and helps her out in some way. I can't remember exactly how, but Either he brings her some of the the uh, ruples or whatever it is that, that are in the in the water, and uh, or something like that. I can't remember. Am, am I am I remembering that correctly? Do you do you guys ring a bell about that? I don't remember that, but um, yeah, I don't I don't remember that that of that happening in the future. But you know, this is certainly um, another story that I was intent that I was incredibly moved by, and you certainly feel this woman's pain of having a child taken from her and, and raising it. And that, you know, it speaks not only to the, uh, the honor matras, but then also even, even the sisterhood did similar stuff, the Bene Gesserit in the past. And so it was, um, it was just, uh, and the fact that she raised this child and made it her own and, you know, made toys for it. Um, and then she still refuses to bend you know, and giving up the location of uh, the Bene Gesserit homeworld. And, uh, but the Phibian child is kind of welcomed into the, into the sea of its own kind. And I, for me, this is just a, certainly, does this story need to be in the universe? Absolutely not. Like he, there's nothing that this adds, fleshes out or makes you wonder more, at least not for me. But I thought that this was a beautiful story nonetheless. Hmm. Jim? Meh, I'll give it a two. <laughs> uh, I, you know, and you know, Scott, I I am I'm glad you got something out of out of this story in the last one. I mean I it, it didn't do a thing for me. Right. So yeah, I'm not I'm See, not if saying I, if I were to rate it go ahead. I'm not saying you're wrong by any stretch and i might i maybe i'll go back and read these two stories again and see if i can see what you saw in them but for me it just oh well it's there okay so like i i i I get that jim um because i think if you look at this story and say this is part of the dune universe uh, you know, uh, yes, because there are like the Honor Matras and there's Bene Gesserit, but you could swap those names out with anyone and it would still be a good story. Like this is not a necessary, this is not a necessary, um, 
this is not necessarily a Dune story. It's a it's a it's a human story of someone taking in an immigrant or someone taking in a foreigner and someone ah. has been rejected. And it's 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 the same type of story that that you could put in any situation, and it would still we'll see. You know, it still kind of yanks at your heartstrings. And, and so for me, like I get what you, I get what you're saying. If you're looking at it saying this is a Dune story, I'm like, well. Yes, sort of, but I look at and say this is a good human story. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You're taking in the person rejected, raising him up, and then this rejected person finds acceptance. You know, who doesn't want to hear that sort of story from me? Yeah. Well, see, and then, as you say, it's under the Dune banner. Right. So, you know, I I would, I'm using that maybe as a measuring stick. Yeah, but that, but then again, you know, you look at what David said at the beginning, why they wrote this for the 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 uh, relief efforts um, in the in the atrocity that happened. You know, you, this is meant to be a story that it kind of pulls your heartstrings. They want to raise funds for these sort of efforts. So one of one of the targeting their okay, go ahead. but one of the hallmarks of the Dune stories, I mean all of them is that they are about humans and now we have introduced another species well that other species is in the other books too right right we we encounter them early on don't we encounter them we'll see that that's how memorable they are god emperor Yeah, they they care. Yeah, you early on with the honored matrons, they they are introduced, but they aren't focused on very heavily. They're not. I mean, right. they're no different than the Talaxu or the um or the navigators. They're just mutated humans. Yeah, they're right. not aliens. Yeah, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, David, what did you rate it? Um, uh, I give it a three. I thought it was. I thought it was. It was good. I thought it, it, it. You know, it was fine for what it was. I thought it. It. You know, I, like I mentioned, that it was going to. That it connected a little bit more, but I could be wrong about that. So, um, not really sure in that scenario. But uh, yeah, I'll give it a solid three. So, all right, we have one more story to talk about in this book. Treasure in the Sand. This story takes place post-Chapter House uh, Dune, and uh, it's after the Honored Matries have devastated Dune and turned it into a barren wasteland where supposedly nothing exists. Now, Chom sends down an expeditionary force uh, to Rackus, which is what they're calling Arrakis now, to see if they can find any treasures or artifacts uh, from the society that used to live there. And uh, they've got general mercenary contractor, mercenary is the wrong word, uh, general contractor, treasure hunter people, as well as a priest that they send down. And of course, they find a couple things here and there, but nothing of real value. Uh, the weird, the, the real thing here is that, that the priest keeps noticing that not everything is gone that there's there's water on arrakis there's water in the air there's water you know coming in through the ceilings of the caves there's uh little moadibs running around all over the place uh so life is not completely 
gone from the planet, which means something must be up here. All that said, they can't find any real treasure, and their time is up. And at the last minute, Chom's like, the priest found treasure, and it was right in front of you the whole time. What was that treasure? Sand. Yeah. Sand from Arrakis. Because at this point, there is several different sects of the cult of the divided god uh, out there worshiping uh, Leto or Shihalud or or whatever you want to, whatever their choice was, you know, the golden path and all these different angles on basically the same thing, making Arrakis a place where people used to take a pilgrimage to. Here they have an opportunity to sell sand from Arrakis for a lot of money, little vials of it. The rich will pay for it uh, because it'll be such an elite thing, which is utterly ridiculous. But at the same time, exactly what you would expect from like when you mix business and religion and it's exactly what you expect i this was i'm not gonna say it's the greatest story ever told i'm not gonna say it's the greatest dune story even in the book but this was my number one story in this book because it was quintessential frank herbert philosophy where he was, you know, constantly writing about the manipulation of religion and business, government, that type of thing. And right here, it all comes full circle with them saying, hey, even even the priest who you would think would be more devout in this situation is like, no, nah, we can sell this and make money for the church, you know, just right. in general. And, and, I, and to me, I was like, that little tidbit is very Frank Herbert. Yes. I agree. This is one of my favorite stories in the book as well. Um, I, you know, from the end, like I, I've always loved stories of people like exploring and finding ancient civilizations. So you certainly have this sort of framework here, and a little bit of mysticism. Then the priest does seem to see stuff that the others can't. Um, but then the turning of it to profit is is also kind of an interesting twist. And so I did, it wasn't my favorite story in the book. I, you know, Hunting Harkonnens probably has to still be my, one of my favorite stories in the book, but this is up there. Like I, I did enjoy this story. I enjoyed going back to Arrakis after it's been destroyed. And this is like an expedition that I would have liked to be on, you know? Yeah. Jim? You sure you want me to say it? <laughs> he, he gave this one a one. No. Um, one half. <laughs> oh my word. Uh yeah. Wow. I I it was like I didn't care. Um <laughs> it I mean, you know, the ending was was what I expected it to be sand, right? We're going to sell this stuff to the true believers and you know, it's just same crap that goes on all the time, snake oil salesman. Uh, you know, dressed up, dressed up as a religious person. And it's like, get out of here. I, I don't even, I don't even want to know about this. So one half a star. Wow. I'm wow, going five. Okay. That's the lowest. I think that's the That's the lowest rating Jim's ever gave. But what'd yeah. you say, Dave? I'm going to go with five. Just because like I said, it was so, 
It was so Frank Herbert that I was I was honestly bored the whole way through. Honestly. But that ending was so Frank philosophy. <laughs> I don't know yes. how to put it. It's just what I love about Dune was just like pointing that stuff out and and real eye opener for me when I was at the right age that he kinda like hit me with that stuff and and uh I just love seeing it again. You know, I mean I know this is not written by him, but it's just uh we don't we read a lot of books and we don't you know that's one of the things i love about dune and and we don't get that in a lot of other books so Mm. yeah there you go yeah so uh for me i gave it a four all righty all righty well that that wraps us up on reviewing each individual book uh i did not write down our reviews to put a (laughs) to to put a full number at the end, I, I'll hopefully do that uh, at a later date, uh, maybe yes. on the website. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I can so, try to jot them down. When I, I can probably try to jot them down as I'm listening and editing. So we'll see. Awesome, that'd but, be very helpful. I do have so, some bad reviews if you want to hear them. Oh please, please <laughs> give us some bad reviews. Yeah. So remember, we used to do the bad reviews when we did the Dune books. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is this one is a two star by MM Strawberry Library Reviews. All right. As a collection of short stories, this is far from the worst thing that Brian and Kevin have written. But Frank Herbert didn't write these stories. So ultimately, this isn't really worth reading. If Brian and Kevin showed more respect for the Dune verse instead of stomping all over it like they have been doing, particularly with hunters and sandworms and the heroes of Dune books, then perhaps their crap might be more worthy of reading. But it's not. So just stick with Frank Herbert's Dune novels and the Dune Encyclopedia that Frank Herbert himself approved of. Two stars. <laughs> yeah, we face this all the time. People don't like yep. Brian and Kevin's stuff. That's whatever. But that's like saying, uh, yep. you know, Frank put a stamp on David Lynch's Dune for some ridiculous reason. Should right. we take that as should we take that as like gospel? <laughs> so like, I hate that movie. I have one more two star, and then I actually have a five star I want to read just to kind of balance it out. Okay. This is by Ryan Ulrich, rated as two star. I have an incredible love for the Dune universe, and I read every book in the series, most more than once. This collection of short stories, most of which seem to be chapters that were cut from Dune novels, are regrettably uninspired and forgettable. Mm. You know, I agree with him in this end. You don't need to read this. You're not gonna. Nope, you're not you really gaining to. or losing anything. So, nope. but fleshes out a little bit and gives us a little bit here and there, and I like it. But, anyways, uh, Joe Pranatus uh, uh, rated it a five stars out of five, and he wrote, "Authors Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson bring us back to the Dune universe with this anthology and expansion of their original Tales of Dune ebook." which has some stories that this one does not. But about this one, it's set up in a period order from the Legends era where we met Xavier Harkonnen's father and brother as they are ambushed by Symex above the future home of the Atreides to the period after the scattering, a time where scavengers come back to the glass dune in order to look for treasures of the god emperor. The last story sets up the last two books in the Dune Saga, Hunters and Sandworms of Dune. It's a great book, and I highly recommend it to all Dune fans. Pick up the ebook version of the original tales as well. So, hmm. yep. Well, all right. There, there you have it. That was a a, a deep dive into the tales of Dune. Uh, 
glad everyone came back and joined us for that. Yeah. This is not, I mean, Dune's, Dune's back. It's back. It's not coming back. It's back. Um, um, right. You know, we've been putting out some little snips of, you know, news and stuff here and there every couple months, but uh, we're going to put out a little, a short little review of the first trailer coming out here. Uh, we're also going to be rereading Dune to uh, just kind of look a nicer review. And then coming up in December, we're going to be reviewing Caladan or Duke of Caladan. Is that what it's called? Duke? Yeah, Duke, Duke of Caladan. Yeah, it's the, it's the newest book, which takes place. It's the number one in a trilogy uh, that takes place one year before Dune. Uh and uh, it's gonna. The first one's called Duke of Caldan. So we're gonna be looking into that. Uh, we're a little bit rusty <laughs> on our Dune knowledge, but it's gonna ca- start flowing back. Don't worry. Uh, right. We're we're still here. We're still doing our thing. Uh, if you enjoy our conversations, um, we do have another podcast called The Orbital Sword, uh, where we review fantasy and sci-fi books uh, about monthly, and it, we alternate back and forth between. Uh, fantasy and sci-fi so uh, you can read along with us and maybe take in a, a, a new type of genre that you're not into if you're not into one and like the other or vice versa so we'd hope you join us for that so once again for the Dune Saga podcast I'm David Moulton I'm Scott Herzog and I'm Jim Arrowwood and may Shai Halud clear the path before you
get cold inside Never get away Cause I will miss you 